Praise the Lord. Are you happy to be here this morning? What a joy it is always just to come to Nations Church and to celebrate what God is doing, not only here in Orlando, but all over the world. Isn't it amazing to think about what God is doing through our extended family members and um, through the boot camp graduates, through the Evangelism Alliance? For those of you that might be new, um, maybe you're visiting us for the first time or you've been coming the last couple of weeks and you're thinking, man, this is strange. How come there's always new people and all these things happening all over the world? Christ for All Nations is an evangelistic ministry. Um, Nations Church is the local uh, church expression of Christ for All Nations, which has you know, 14 offices in 12 countries on six continents. We've seen more than 83 million people come to Christ over the last couple of decades and counting. Back in 2017, the Lord gave me a word for the upcoming decade that we're in now and said that it would be a decade of double harvest. And what I knew just from the Holy Spirit at that time is that we would see the number of people saved through the ministry, which at that time was about 75 million. It would double in this decade to 150 million, and it would be the beginning of the greatest season of harvest in the history of the world, I believe we will see in the following decade a billion soul harvest come in. And so this is still the very early days of that. And the main mechanism that the Lord gave us for seeing that multiplication take place is what we call the Christ for All Nations Evangelism Boot Camp. And that is a three-month boot camp that runs every year uh, right here in Orlando over at our ministry center and our headquarters here in Orlando and during that three-month period, all of those boot camp students and their families are a part of the church. And then, very interestingly, after they graduate, many of them base out of Orlando and base out of Nations Church as they come and go to the nations of the world. And so this little local family has become kind of like a modern-day Antioch. And it's always got people coming and going. As you heard from Rachel Smith, who just led us singing the missionary anthem earlier today, she's on her way to Tanzania for six weeks to work with our team that's on the ground there preparing an Operation Decapolis campaign, which if you don't know what that is, it's five simultaneous crusades happening in five different cities in one nation at the same time. And basically we have teams there preparing everything. And then I go and I travel from city to city. Each city I go to, there's a new crusade that's been ongoing there. I preach one night and I move on. And it's just incredible what God is doing. And so welcome to the center the eye of the hurricane right here at Nations Church. And uh, I promise you one thing, it's never boring around here. Amen. Oh, and also, we are just about to celebrate this coming weekend one year, our one-year anniversary here at Nations Church. Isn't that amazing? All of that happening in less than a year. And uh, we really believe in celebration here. You know, a lot of churches, I, I, let me just clarify this for you because Sometimes we get so into just the cut and thrust of, of uh, the life of the church and, the, and all of the things we have to get to in the service that it's almost like we don't stop to communicate the culture of what God is doing here. And you know, in some churches, Sunday morning is the end-all be-all of the spiritual life of the people that go to the church. You know what I'm talking about. So th if they don't pray in church on Sunday morning, they don't really pray. If they don't worship in church on Sunday morning, they don't really worship. If they don't uh, hear good preaching, they don't read the Bible Monday through Friday. So it's like the, the, the pastor and the Sunday morning service is responsible to spoon feed them their entire spiritual lives. That is not what we are here. 
because this is a living, dynamic community of believers every single day of the week, all over the world and all through the city, we're living our Christian lives. There are small groups meeting for discipleship all through the week. There's outreach going on every single day. We're discipling new converts. We're going to the nations. We are, we're winning our city to the Lord. And so Sunday morning is not where we get all of our spiritual nourishment. Sunday morning, we come together. We celebrate what God is doing. We, we encourage one another in the Lord. We worship God together and thank him. And then we high five and we go back out and do it again. Amen. And so... Um, this morning, I, I have something very special on my heart, especially for those of you that are in the boot camp. Again, boot camp just began this week. And so um, I want to speak especially to those of you that are um, boot camp students or families of boot camp students. But actually, this is not just for those of you that are in the boot camp. This is for everyone that has been called by God to be a part of what's happening right here at Nations Church. And everyone who has been called by God to be a part of this end time harvest. How many of you would say this morning, I believe that God has called me to have a part to play in this end time harvest? Amen. Now for some of you that might mean going to the nations with us and standing on a platform and preaching the gospel in front of multitudes. For some of you it might mean locking up in your prayer closet and interceding for the ones that go. For some of you it might be giving, it might be sending, it might be sponsoring a boot camp student. There's all kinds of ways that we participate but I believe that every single person that God has called to be a part of this family has a role to play. And you know, when I get out there on the field, uh, very often the pictures that you see, the videos that you see coming back are of, of me preaching or of one of the boot camp graduates preaching or something like that. But I have a, a consciousness and an awareness when I stand there on the crusade platform, wherever it is in the world, and I take that microphone in my hand, I'm, I'm very much aware that my action at that moment is the last link in a very long chain of events that has started sometimes years earlier and to which thousands of people have contributed. And we are all in this together. And I truly believe this is not just a cliche. This is not just a nicety to say to make you feel good. I really do believe that in the end, when we stand before the Lord and we hear him say, well done, because of what has happened in, in this incredible season of harvest, I believe that it's not going to be just me standing there. It's not just going to be me and Reinhard Bonnke standing there. It's going to be all of us as a family standing there before the Lord, hearing the collective well done, enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? And so if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Esther chapter 4 this morning. Esther chapter 4. And we're going to read a passage of scripture here that's very well known. And then I have a very special guest that's going to be speaking to us this morning. Not me, but um, someone who I believe is one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived. Certainly the greatest of our generation. And he, he's going to say a couple words to you as well. But before we do that, let's just read this together. Esther chapter number 4. And we're going to read a section from verse 14, something that you all know very well. The last part of that verse that Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows but that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you have heard a sermon preached on that verse before? I think just about any person who's spent any time in the church world knows that passage by heart and you've probably heard a dozen different messages on that verse. And how many of you know a verse preached on Esther 4.12 
Who knows but that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. These are always going to be very exciting, inspirational, uplifting, motivational type messages. How many of you like inspiring and motivating? How many of you like me just to motivate you this morning and to inspire you and to, would you like that? Okay, well, I'm not going to do that. Not even close this morning because actually this message is going to be a little bit hard. It's going to be a little bit heavy. So just, just uh, turn to the person next to you and say, get ready. It's, it's coming. I see, I see Daniel's got his uh, evangelist hat on. Don't see the pastoral hat anywhere this morning. See, a lot of people, when they, when they preach on Esther 4.12, they're missing the actual context of the verse, which is really important. Because in this passage, there's something going on here that you really need to know about in order to understand what Mordecai is saying. Let me just paint the picture for you. Let's just, just step back a little bit and think about the context of the story into which this incredible passage was delivered. Esther was a Jew. She was a part of a nation that God had chosen. These were supposed to be the people upon whom God's favor was resting in such a way that it caused the nations of the world to see and fear and know that God was in their midst. But of course, you know that the nation of Israel rebelled. They disobeyed God over and over and over again. And eventually the nation was sent away into exile. What that meant was that the people were basically conquered by foreign nations. They were taken away as slaves or subjects into foreign lands. And this happened during that exile period when Israel was taken to Persia. And of course, the Jews in Persia weren't known as God's chosen people. They were thought of as basically the scum of the earth. They were the lowest social class. They were the poor people. They were minorities. They were people that were subjugated. They were people that were looked down upon. And of course, in those days, it was very different than it is today. Not only were, were they not given special treatment, they were treated even worse because of their minority status in the land of Persia. And so here's what happens. You have this young lady. Her name is Esther. She comes from a broken home. We don't know where her parents are. We don't know where her grandparents are. She's being raised by someone who's either a cousin or an uncle by the name of Mordecai. She's poor. She comes from a low socioeconomic status. She belongs to a race of people that is misunderstood and has been subjugated She is at the very bottom of the social totem pole. And then in the ultimate rags to riches story, we see a plot twist where Esther is raised up from the gutter all the way, not just a little bit higher, but she goes from the bottom to the very, very, very top. She becomes the wife of the most powerful king in the world, the king of Persia, and it's a complete upheaval in what we thought the story was going to be. Actually, I would, I would encourage you if, you, if you have time, maybe even this week, go read the book of, Ex, of Esther all in one sitting. Don't read it like you're studying the Bible. Read it like a piece of classic literature. Because that's what it is. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing piece of literature. It's so well written. And it's got all of these fascinating little plot twists and Easter eggs that have been scattered throughout to teach these incredible lessons. One of the fascinating things about the book of Esther is this. It's the only book in the Bible in which God is never mentioned one time. 
Did you know that? God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet when you read it, you cannot help but see that God's fingerprints are all over it. God is in the story even when he is not pointed out explicitly. And he is organizing all things according to the counsel of his own will. But here's the thing. When you read the story as an outsider looking in from the top down and you see the end from the beginning, you're able to appreciate the fact that God is working in the midst of what seems like a very dark situation. But when you're in the story, you don't always see God's hand in the moment. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You see, if if you could get into a time machine and go 20 years into the future and look back at the season that you're in right now, a lot of things would suddenly make sense to you that don't make sense right now. And a lot of you can probably relate to this even at this stage of your life. If you look back at things that you've come through and you can remember times where you didn't understand what God was doing, but now you look back and you say, oh, now it all makes sense. I see how everything came together. This is the same thing that it must have been like for Esther because when we think of the story of Esther, we already know what happens at the end. But in the midst of the story, Esther didn't know. And here's what was going on. So Esther, suddenly she goes from the gutter to the palace. And imagine the incredible change of her situation. Now not only is she not the slave, now she has servants waiting on her. She doesn't live in a tent in the ghetto, she lives in the palace. She's got a room that's made of these beautiful granite blocks and her view out the window is the most amazing scenery. And the food that's brought to her on golden trays is the most exquisite cuisine that you could have anywhere in the kingdom. And her clothes are made out of the finest fabrics brought from all over the world. It was an incredible situation. Just as God has raised up anonymously a Jewish queen in the palace, the enemy is also working. Did you know that the enemy has a plan for your life? We always love to say, especially evangelists, you tell people, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. And that's true. But let me tell you something else. The devil hates you and he has a plan for your life too. And the devil is always plotting and he's always scheming. And this is what we see happening in the land of Persia, that there is a man who is like the right-hand man of the king, who has an evil heart. He's like an ancient Hitler. And his desire is to wipe the Jewish people off of the face of the earth. And so he begins cooking up this diabolical scheme to conduct a holocaust to exterminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. But God has already put in the palace an answer, an antidote, a solution for the schemes of the enemy. Let me tell you something, my friend. Whatever the devil is cooking up in your life right now, whatever he's trying to use to destroy you, I don't know what it is, but I can promise you one thing. God has already preempted him. He has already put a solution in place. He has already got an answer. He has already got an antidote. He has already got a solution for that problem. And I promise you it's already working in your life because that's the way that God is. Did you know God is always 10 steps ahead of the devil? He is never taken off guard. Every time the devil puts in his man, God's already had his woman ready to go. That's the way it was with Esther. And so Esther's there. And again, she's a Jew. Remember, Haman wants to kill and exterminate the Jews. Esther is a Jew. And Esther is married to the king. So you would think, well, this is an easy easy solution, right? Esther just has to talk to her husband. Not so quick. Because you see, there's a rule that 
you're not allowed to approach the king, even if you're his wife, without an invitation. And the king has not summoned for his wife to come. And for her to appear in his chambers and make any kind of appeal is literally risking her life. But there's another layer to the story, which is that Esther knows that the king doesn't know that she's a Jew. What if the king finds out? What if the king has the evil heart that Haman has? What if the king also hates the Jews? By exposing herself, she's risking everything. All of the wealth. I mean, it was as though she won the lottery. She was living a life that was one in a billion. She had totally just landed on the most incredible situation. Once in a, in a million lifetimes, something like this happens. And now she was faced with the possibility of throwing it all away in what might be a misguided attempt to be a hero. Because if she steps out, if she speaks up, maybe the king will listen, but maybe he won't. And if he doesn't, what good has she done? She's given up all the things that she had acquired, and she still didn't save her people. This is how she was thinking. And you might say to me, how do you know, Daniel? How do, how do you know that that's what was going on in her heart and mind? Well, partly it's because of what we see in the context, which I'm going to read for you in a moment. But the other part of it is just that I am a human being and I understand human nature. And moreover, I live in the Western world. And we Westerners are like this all the time because, you know, we've been blessed. We've been so blessed by God. You don't realize it, but if you're sitting in this room in the United States of America, you are in the 1% of the 1% of the most wealthy, blessed, prosperous human beings that has walked the face of the earth in human history. And somehow in the midst of that, we think that we are so blessed because of something that we did. We deserve it. We work hard. We deserve it. We spent a lot of years in school. We did this. We did that. Our parents did this. Our grandparents did this. We have all these reasons that we justify the blessings that we've acquired in our lives. Just as Esther probably thought, well, the reason I'm in the palace is because I'm so beautiful. I mean, I did a lot of beautification rituals. I did my hair just right. And by the way, I also listened to the people that gave me advice. She had all kinds of reasons why she thought she had earned it. But then Mordecai sends a message to Esther. And this is what we read. Let me read this passage for you now in its context. Beginning in verse 13 of Esther chapter 4. Then Mordecai told them to return this answer to Esther. Listen to what he says. I'm reading this out of the Amplified. Do not flatter yourself. Man, that'll preach right there, won't it? This is, a, this is a word for the Church of America. Don't flatter yourself. God didn't choose you because you're so beautiful. God didn't choose you because you're so smart. God didn't choose you because you're so intelligent and so educated and so holy and so righteous. Do not flatter yourself that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for, for the Jews from elsewhere, but you and your father's house will perish. And then we read the famous line, and who knows but that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this and for this very occasion. In other words, let me paraphrase this for you. Mordecai is saying, Esther, you are not in the palace because you won the lottery. <laughs> You're not that lucky. You're not even in the palace because you're so beautiful. There's nothing you did that qualified you for this. Let me tell you why you are in the palace. Stop flattering yourself and listen. 
You are there because you are a strategic part of a divine purpose. God puts you there. God organized this and orchestrated this for this moment. And for you to speak up on behalf of your people is not some generosity. It is the reasonable, expected service because that's why you're there in the first place. God didn't put you there so you could have lobster and steak, caviar. God didn't put you there because he thought you were so beautiful in that dress. God put you there because you are his solution. And I say that to those of you that are part of this church. I say that to those of you that are a part of the boot camp. Do not flatter yourself. You know, we, especially in the early days, we would turn down 80 to 90% of the applicants of the boot camp looking for the ones that God had selected. But then on the other side of that, there's a tendency to think that I'm here because there's something special about me. Get that out of your system. You're not here because you're special. I'm not here because I'm special. I'll tell you what, there are people I've met all over the, over the world that are 100 times more qualified than you and me put together. When I preach in Africa, when I pray for the, these pastors and these workers in the local churches, and I see the hunger in their hearts, and I see the willingness to lay down their lives, I say, God, why did you choose me? It ought to bring us to our knees when we realize how blessed we are to be chosen by God to be a part of his work. It's not because of us, it's in spite of us. And I tell you what, God can raise up the next world changer overnight like he did with Esther. He needs nobody's permission. He can take you, he can take someone from the gutter and he can put him in the palace. He can take some, some, he can take somebody that never went to Bible school, never went to boot camp, never graduated high school. And he can turn it into the next Billy Graham if he wants to. He needs nobody's permission. It reminds me of what, the, of what John the Baptist said to the Jewish leaders of his day. These guys, these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the ones that had done all the study and they, they were so educated, they were so qualified and all of that besides the fact that they were also Jews, which made them part of a very special race. They were very proud of their status. And John let the air out of their tires when he said, don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's not your pedigree. It's not your history. It's not your education. It's not your looks. It's not your status. It's not, your, it's not where you come from. It's just God's choice. And we don't understand why, but one thing we understand is that when someone has been chosen, now much is required from that person. So listen to what he says. Don't flatter yourself that you will escape in the king's house any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, listen to what he says. It's, it's amazing. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, not only is he saying God is going to get his way with or without you, Let's just camp there for a minute. I think we need to remember this because, you know, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't know if there's any Calvinists in the house. I actually have a class in the boot camp called Killing Calvin and why it's God's will for me to do so, which is a funny joke if you get what I'm saying. 
I don't believe that God micromanages the, the movement of every molecule in, in the universe. I don't think he needs to. I think God is so infinitely smarter than us that he doesn't need to micromanage us to get his way. But here's the other side of that equa equation. God always gets his way. Always. Always. And he chooses people and he uses people to be a part of it. Sometimes he uses them like Pharaoh and hardens their hearts. But God is going to get his way in the end one way or another. You don't get to choose whether or not God wins. All you get to choose is if you're going to be on his team or not. You get to choose whether you're going to get on the train or get run over by it. You don't get to choose whether or not God is going to get his will accomplished in the earth. But here's the reality. Mordecai says to Esther, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will arise from somewhere else. God will find some other person through whom to accomplish his will. But you and your father's house will perish. In other words, if you stand in God's way, you're the one that pays the price. Hmm. It does a, it, it's great at deflating the ego, isn't it? It's number one, don't flatter yourself. This is not because of you. Number two, God's going to get his way with or without you. Number three, the only person that stands a chance of losing here is you. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, boot campers. Let the ego just drain out and fall on your face before God and say, Lord, why me? Give me grace to run this race with patience and perseverance until the very end. Come on, somebody say amen to that. Amen. All right, so here's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to play a little video for you. This video is from a man who I believe is the greatest evangelist of our time, a man that I loved very much. His name was Reinhard Bonnke. How many of you know who Reinhard Bonnke was? And, you know, when Reinhard was around, one of my favorite things to do in the world was to sit with him and talk. We traveled the world together for many years, and then even when that slowed down because of his health, I would make a point every week to go sit with him and listen to his stories. And on, on a few occasions, I took um, Carlos, who was in charge of our media department, and we set up video cameras, and we interviewed Reinhard and let him tell some of the old stories. So... I'm going to play two parts, one at a time, of an interview that I had with him in his home. This was, I believe, in Vero Beach. And um, I think the answer that Reinhardt gave to those questions that I asked is going to be very revealing for you. I think it's going to make a big impact. So let's watch this. I was dreaming. I saw a huge map of Africa. And then the next thing was, Africa became washed in the precious blood of Jesus, from south to north and from west to east. And I heard a voice cry. That voice was something extraordinary. I, I'm, I'm sure it was the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he cried, Africa shall be saved was like a thunder. I woke up. I said, oh, that is wonderful. The Holy Spirit was in the bedroom. I felt the anointing of the Spirit of God. And then my German brain began to tick again. And I thought, my ministry has no impact in this tiny little country of Lesotho. And now I hear God say, Africa shall be saved. 
There's something wrong. I must have eaten bad bananas last night. But I had that dream four consecutive nights. And after night number four, I said to my wife, Honey, I think God is trying to tell me something. The mission board of the Felberter Mission, to which I belonged, came to investigate the whole situation. And I thought they were pleased that I was doing so well. But then he took me aside and he said, you cannot go on doing this. The printing press, all my evangelistic developments, they wanted to stop. I was just to be a missionary like their other missionaries. They didn't want anyone to fry an extra sausage. You had to stick to the rules, be like everybody else. And now I was pregnant, kind of pregnant, with that vision uh, of, of, of bringing the gospel of salvation to the whole continent of Africa. So I was now somehow in a dead-end road. I didn't want to offend my German superiors, but I didn't want to offend God. And then I decided to go uh, and uh, hire a room in a hotel uh, right there at the border of, of Lesotho. And I thought, I'm going to pray here until God has spoken to me. I, I fell on my knees at the bedside there and I said, Lord, for the sake of peace, please allow me to agree with my German brothers. And I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And then the Lord spoke words that made me shake like a leaf in the wind. He said to me, if you drop the vision I gave you of a blood-washed Africa, I have to drop you and give it to someone else to bring it about. I shook. Physically, I shook like a leaf. I jumped up. I hadn't been longer than one hour in that hotel room. It was a very short fast. I, I paid my bill. I jumped into the car and I drove home. And I said, Annie, 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 God has spoken. Where's my typewriter? I'm going to write a letter to Velvet and I'm going to resign. Oh, and he said, can't you please sleep one night over it? I said, no, no, I can't. I can't sleep any night because God said he's going to drop me if I drop that vision. So I wrote my resignation and then peace, deep peace came into my heart and I've never looked back. Those very men who tried to prevent it later on congratulated me for not having obeyed them. So that is the blessed outcome. I love the part where he said it was a very short fast. <laughs> it was an hour. <laughs> Those of us that knew Reinhard well, we knew he didn't like to fast very much, but he did love to obey. Sometimes it would be better to eat and obey 
Some people are fasting because they're trying to get God to change his mind about something that he's already said. No amount of fasting is going to, God doesn't respond to hunger strikes. What would be much better is just to submit our hearts before the Lord and say, yes, Lord, you are the king. You are the Lord. We are the clay. We are in the hands of the potter. Don't flatter yourself that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from elsewhere. But you and your father's house will perish. This is what happened many times in scripture. This is very biblical, by the way. You know, you say, well, Daniel, doesn't the Bible say that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance? Yes, it does. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. But that does not mean that any person is irreplaceable. Let me say that again. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, but that does not mean that any person is irreplaceable. You remember the story of Esau. Esau was the firstborn in the family. He was the one that was supposed to have the birthright, but he despised his birthright and gave it up for a bowl of pottage, and his younger brother Jacob ended up getting the birthright. It happened again with Saul. Remember the very first king of Israel. It should have been Saul's family through whom that royal line would have continued generation after generation. But Saul continually disobeyed the Lord, and so God passed over him and gave that legacy, that lineage, to a boy out in the field watching sheep by the name of David. And it was through David's line that the Messiah was eventually born. You see, God has many solutions to the problems that we face. All those solutions, by the way, are found in people. But there's a lot of people around. And God is a God of infinite creativity. And it's not that he's looking for the people that have the most qualifications. He's looking for the ones that are yielded. He qualifies the yielded. He doesn't choose the qualified. I want to play one more video for you. By the way, I just want to mention this, that that first part that you saw, if you've read Evangelist Bonke's autobiography, which is an incredible book, by the way, you would have heard that story. We've talked about that many times, that vision of the blood-washed Africa. But the part that you don't know is what's coming next, because I don't know that he ever said this publicly, but we were fortunate enough to have cameras rolling, and we captured this. And to me, it's such an amazing part of the story that you've never heard, and I want you to hear it now. Let's play that. God will not allow anyone to thwart him and his plans. You know, he uh, puts people out of the way and puts people in the way. But those who are willing to go that way, I felt God could overnight raise anyone, anyone, anyone else to do that job. But I was so keen to go with him and see nations uh, shaken for Jesus. Before we had the big tent, which sat 34,000 people, we had one that was sitting about 10,000 people. It was the so-called uh, 10,000 seater. And uh, we moved around South Africa, Southern Africa at that time. And so I came to the Transkei and uh, while we were in the midst of our gospel crusade there, I heard that a very famous African evangelist 
was just uh, about 50 kilometers away. Uh, I knew his name and I was thrilled that he was so close. So the next day I drove all the way to that other tent and it was not the man there I had expected, not that great African evangelist, but one of his uh, deputies. But we talked and he said the big man of God in 1972 decided to drop his crusade ministry on a large scale. I listened and listened and listened and suddenly I remembered it was in 1972 that God gave me the vision of a blood-washed Africa that shook me to the core. In those days I had not even known that great man, but the Lord, unbeknown to me, already put in a replacement. He has replacements, and they are all top choices. They are all top choices. They may be number two or number three, but when God gets hold of a man or a woman, he enables them to fulfill that task. And I humbly submit that that was the case in my own life. The moral of the story is, if I were you, I would not procrastinate and I would not just postpone it. I would jump and I would do what God has told me to do. It's in any case the highest calling possible on earth. It's the highest form of human living on earth. That's what it is. And to have the honor to be called by God is more than being the president of the mightiest nation on earth. Would you just stand with me? I just felt like the, the Lord spoke something very clearly to me while Reiner was talking. You know, there's some of you, maybe in this environment, you feel somewhat, I don't know, you feel underqualified. You see all these great evangelists and preachers and you think, who am I? But remember what Reiner said. When God gets hold of a man or a woman, he enables them to do what would have been impossible for them to do otherwise. See, God is not looking for your abilities. He's looking for your availability. There's a story that many of you will know. I'm just going to read the way that I wrote it in my journal. It's a classic story of the missions movement. John Leonard Dober was a potter. David Nitschman was a carpenter. Both were powerful and articulate preachers, and they were part of the first Moravian missionary movement led by Count Zinzendorf. They heard about a godless, wealthy British landowner who had purchased an island to which he transferred all of his slaves in order to keep them from being touched by any outside influence, especially religion. He determined that even if an outsider were to 
shipwreck and, and arrive on the island by accident, he would incarcerate them until he could send them away immediately without having any interaction with his slaves. So these two men, John Leonard Dober and, pa and David Nietzschman, they decided to do something to win that island to Jesus. You know what they did? They sold themselves into slavery to that landowner. And then they used the money from the sale of their own freedom to pay their fare to the island. On October 8th, 1732, friends and family members gathered there at the seashore weeping and saying their final goodbyes. And as the island-bound sea vessel was pulling away from the docks, the account said that these two young men raised their hands to heaven and shouted the last words that were ever heard from them. You know what they were? May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. That statement became the rallying cry of the Moravian missionary movement. And millions of people came to Christ as a result of that declaration. You see, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about boot camp, it's not even about Nations Church. It's about the lamb who was slain receiving the reward of his suffering, that which he paid the price for, the ultimate price of his own blood. And he invites us to enter into that. And my friend, let me tell you something. When all of the annals of history have been written, when all is said and done, when the earth has melted with a fervent heat and has passed away for a million years, the only thing that will matter in eternity is that which was done for the sake of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. Those are the things that will matter. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm proud that I can lay my life down for that cause. And I just want to open these altars up. I, I know many of you, especially those of you in the boot camp, have already made a decision to follow the Lord in this very radical, extreme way, or you wouldn't be here. But I also believe that there are many of you that need to, once and for all, turn away from anything that's been holding you back and say once and for all, I am going to run with patience this race set before me, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, who for the price set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. There are, there are places in the world I could take you right now. I'm talking about physical buildings. I could take you into the building, and I could take you to a place in the altar, and I could show you a spot on the carpet where I said yes to Jesus, where I committed my life to him afresh in a way that changed everything. And when I look around the room, that's what I see here all across this altar area is places where you are going to make a, put a stake in the ground that's gonna result in a change in eternity. If you need to do that this morning, I believe that heaven is watching. And I wanna encourage you just to get out of your seat and to come forward and to kneel here at this altar and to make that commitment afresh this morning. My life for the gospel, all that I am, all that I have, I surrender for the sake of this one who gave all that he had for me. And as we sing this song again, it's called the Missionary Anthem. I, want, I don't want us just to sing it as some song with a bunch of empty words. I want us to make it a declaration. I want us to make it a prayer. I want us to make it a commitment. And may heaven hear it. Amen.